0: Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just wanna make sure you're aware of a few things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks at Hope church LV, and also be sure to check out our website at HopeChurchOnline.com. There, you can find out more information about who we are and where we're going as a church. Once again, thank you so much for checking out this sermon at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. We all have different holiday traditions when we gather as families, but one of the things that my family tends to always wind up doing and This season of holidays when we gather together is we wind up playing some games. Any other game-playing families out there? Your family gets together, everybody starts playing some games. We like to play games, and sometimes it doesn't go well because we're all very competitive. But we love to play games. The game we've been playing this weekend with some of our family is a card game, called Dutch Blitz. Don't know if you ever heard of that game. It's an awesome, awesome card game. I picked it up in Holland when I was there at one time. It's a great, great game. I love to play that. Another game we've been playing this weekend that our kids taught us, it's a new game. You have to have a smart TV, but you can download it. It's called Jackbox. Anybody playing the new game, Jackbox? It's a great party game. Anybody with a smartphone can play. It's a really cool game. But there's another game that I've been playing my whole life. I mean, I grew up from the time I was a small child we always played this game at our house, and it was called the Game of Life. How many of you have ever seen or played the Game of Life? That's what I thought. Almost everybody's played the Game of Life. This is actually the one from my house. We had to. My wife had to help me. We had to tape the box together this morning. We played it so much that it's begun to fall apart. The Game of Life is a game that's played all over our culture in America, but it's not just an American thing anymore. As a matter of fact, the Game of life is now played in 20 different languages around the world and this game is so much a part of our culture that it's become a part of the permanent collection of the National Museum of American History at the Smithsonian Institute so the game of life has really permeated American culture I have in my hand the actual instruction manual out of this box, the game of life. All these instructions here, and I'm one of those people, I like the instructions. Like I like to make sure everybody in the game is following the instructions. If you're not following the instructions, I may not say it outwardly, but inwardly, I have very bad feelings about you. I'm an instruction rule follower. So in the instruction manual, right at the end, is a powerful little section. It's actually my favorite section. Here's what it says. How to win, right? That's the reason we're playing the game. People say, we play the game to have fun. No, I play the game to win, right? It's about winning the game. And I want to read you. I'm going to put it up here on the screen so you can see it. But here's literally what it says in the section how to win. After all players have retired. All players then count up their money. The player with the highest dollar amount, what does it say? Yes. That's the word we're looking for, right? The the player with the highest dollar amount wins. Now, it's a funny little game. Some of you remember the game. It's got the little plastic cars, and it got the little people that you stick in the cars. And then you choose if you're going to do college first or go straight career. Then you start getting your paydays, and you start collecting money. But then the, the rule book says when you get to the end, the player with the highest dollar amount wins. And that is what we've been taught is the game of life. Unfortunately, for many people in our culture, it's not just a game. Our outlook on life is exactly what that instruction manual said. We think winning in life is determined by who has the most at the end. Our society here in America is dominated by the mentality, get all you can, can all you get, sit on the lid and poison the rest, right? It's about me getting mine. It's about me accumulating stuff. We have an obsession in our culture with accumulating wealth, accumulating more. And nowhere in our culture is this more obvious than this past weekend, right? I mean, think about this past weekend. Thanksgiving on Thursday. Black Friday on Friday. I had a friend, Eric Geiger, said it this way. The irony of this weekend is this. On Thursday, be thankful for what you have. On Friday, rush to accumulate more. Black Friday weekend used to be a day. Black Friday. Then it creeped into being Thursday evening into Friday. And now it starts on Monday and it doesn't end till next Monday, right? It's Black Friday is now an entire week of our lives. And you see in our culture this obsession with acquiring things. Let me give you a couple of stats from this weekend. Here's the first one. Did you know that Americans will spend this weekend 87 billion dollars just this weekend alone black friday weekend 87 billion dollars now we hear billions and trillions and stuff like that so much that it's kind of we're kind of numb to it but here's what i want you to understand 87 billion dollars is more than the gross domestic product of over a hundred nations in the year in the world on an annual basis meaning A hundred countries in the world this year will not produce and sell as much as we bought this weekend in America. Here's another statistic from the weekend. We don't have it yet for 2019, but here's 2018 stat. The average American in 2018 incurred over $1,200 in debt around the holiday, and Black Friday was responsible for a big chunk of that debt. Again, $1,200 in debt. Now, here's the tragedy of this. That $1,200 in debt, the average American will pay off over the next five years. You talk about some buyer's remorse, right? You're going to be buying next year's Christmas, and you had not paid off last year's Christmas yet. What is that? It's an obsession with stuff. We think that somehow this is really what life's about. It's about acquiring more, it's about getting more, it's about having more. And we can kind of laugh about some of this stuff, but some of this stuff is, is beyond the ability to laugh about. Did you know that there's really a website? This is, I'm very genuine. You can look it up yourself. Black Friday Count.com. And it tracks the number of people that have been killed or seriously injured in Black Friday shopping events. Since 2006, 12 people have died and 117 people have been seriously injured in Black Friday shopping events. Unfortunately, money and the things it can buy have become the dominating influence in our culture. And listen, it's not just out there. You see, if we're not careful as Christians, we get sucked up into the worldview of our culture. George Barna is a researcher out of California who researches American culture and Christianity. Look what George Barna discovered. 51% of Christians and 54% of non-Christians believe money is the main symbol of success in life. So more than half of Americans out there, but not just out there. Barna found out that over half of all people who claim to follow Jesus believe. If you really want to know if you're successful in life, here's the determining factor. How much money... How much wealth do you have? And if we can kind of take off the church face for just a minute and just get real vulnerable and transparent, because of the world we live in as Christians and because of the culture that we're in here in America, all of us at some level have to fight our flesh in this desire for more. The newest, the latest, the fastest, the biggest, the greatest. So here's the question I want to ask this morning. Does the Bible speak to any of this? And the answer is a resounding yes. Our worldview does not have to be shaped by society scripture speaks directly to this issue and not just scripture jesus himself did you know that jesus actually talked about money more often than prayer and faith combined if you take all the teachings of jesus on prayer and faith add it together he talked about money more than both of those things combined why is that because money and material wealth often reveals where our heart is jesus even said He said, you want to know where your heart is? You look where your treasure is. Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. One of the followers of Jesus in the early church was a man named Paul. And Paul wrote a number of letters that are contained now in the New Testament. One of them was written at the very end of his life. It's what we call in our Bibles the book of 1 Timothy. If you have your Bible, I want you to open it to 1 Timothy. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul addresses this idea of money and material wealth and we're going to be over this weekend and next weekend unpacking this section of scripture you say why are we doing this right now here's why we're doing this right now we're doing this right now for a couple of reasons. Number one, this is a time every year that we present to you as a church an annual budget for our church fellowship. And we understand as a body, as a people, we have a responsibility to steward God's resources. So it's an opportunity for us to just take a fresh look at what God's Word has to say. But secondly, between Thanksgiving and Christmas... People put themselves in such financial bondage by making decisions based on this driving motivation of having to get more and the latest and the greatest, that this is a prime opportunity in the midst of society and all the marketing that's being driven at us right now to say, wait a minute, let me get a clear understanding of what scripture says and let God's word drive my perspective in the midst of this season. And then thirdly, January is just around the corner. And so many people look back over the last year with such regret over how they've managed resources and material wealth that January often leads to New Year's resolutions about how we're going to handle money. So we're going to take just two weekends and we're going to unpack some biblical principles here out of 1 Timothy 6. I'm going to put the verses up on the screen. We're going to start in verse 17. Here's what Paul writes and he says. Instruct those who are, say the next word out loud. Say that word again. Say it loud. Now, I know what some of you immediately did. You immediately said, thank God he's not talking to me today. I mean, I know when a pastor gets up and the word money comes out of his mouth, there's a level of discomfort that everybody begins to feel. Oh, oh, we're talking about money today. What? But, but then you, you say, oh, he's going to talk about rich people. Go get them, man. You, you go all day long, man. You go get the rich people. I'm, that's not for me today, but I'm going to be amening you today as you address all the rich people here in the church. Well, before we read the rest of it, let me give us some perspective. There's a website called theglobalrichlist.com. And what this website allows you to do is enter your annual salary. And you can compare your annual salary, what you make in the course of a year, to what everybody else in the world will make this year. Let me show it to you. Put it up on the screen. Here's the website. You can do it later on. Don't do it right now. But you can later on go to globalrichlist.com, and you can see you can select income or wealth. You can do this based on your annual income or on your total, uh, what you own, your possessions, your wealth. But we're just going to use the income tab, and we've selected the U.S. as our location. And so we're going to enter an annual income of $25,000. So let's just assume this year we made $25,000. You hit the link there, and it says that if you made $25,000 this year, you made more than 98% of the 7.7 billion people living on planet Earth. If you just made $25,000, you're in the top 2%. Of income earners on the face of planet earth. Let's up the game just a little bit. Let's take it to 50000 Which is viewed in America as kind of the, the, the median household income. $50,000 that you made this year as a household income. Let, let's see the results there. If your household made $50,000 or more, you're in the top 0.31% income earners on the face of planet earth, meaning out of 7.7 billion people, 99.69% of them last year made less than you did. You know what that means? We're all rich. The word rich in the New Testament does not mean what you and I think it means. It does not mean multi-millionaire. The word rich is a word that means enough or more than enough. It's somebody who has their needs met with some extra. That's rich in the eyes of the world. In the eyes of the world, all of us are rich. When Paul says, I'm talking to the rich, he's talking to us. Say that out loud. Us. Say it one more time. Us. So as we read this, when we hear the word rich, who is he talking about? Us. Us. Let's read it. Instruct those who are, say it out loud. Who's that? It's us. In this present world, Not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Man, when you look at that chart, you understand quickly that, man, that ought to be something that we are giving God great thanks for because He supplied us with so much to enjoy. Verse 18, instruct them to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life in deed. Paul here gives us a great section of scripture that stands in stark contrast to the reality of the culture that we live in as it approaches money and material possession. So I want to give you an overview. Here's what I'm going to unpack this weekend and next weekend. Three truths right out of these verses. We're going to look at them. We're only going to look at the first one this weekend, but I want to go ahead and give you what we're going to look at. Number one, life is not about money. Life is not about money. Say that out loud with me. Life is not about money. It's not. We're going to talk about that today. Number two, next weekend, money is a valuable resource in life. Life's not about money, but money is a reality in life. It's a resource, and we're going to talk next weekend about how we are to steward and manage the resource called money, and I'm going to give you some principles at the end that will set up next weekend. And then number three, this is the one that you may not know, how I manage my money in this life impacts the life to come. Paul tells us all of that right here in this one paragraph. Life's not about money, but money is a reality. It's a valuable resource in life. And how we manage, how we steward our resources has an impact in the life to come. So let's jump in today looking at this first one. Life is not about money. Life's not about money. And and Paul in these verses gives us some support, some reasons why life is not about money. Here's the first one. Material wealth is temporary. It's temporary. Listen to what Paul said in verse number 17. He said, Instruct those who are rich, and here's the phrase, in this present world. Why did he add that phrase? He could have just said, Instruct those who are rich, but he didn't. He said, Instruct those who are rich in this present world. Why the added phrase there? Because Paul knew that this present world is not all there is. You see, if this life was all that there was, then maybe money is what life is all about. But this life is not all there is. There is a life yet to come, and the life that we're living now is just a small speck on the stream of eternity that real life is all about. And the currency of this world is not the currency. Of the next world. It's temporary. It goes back to what Paul said a few verses earlier. In this same letter in chapter 6 of 1 of, of Timothy, in verse 7, listen to what Paul said. Paul said, For we have brought, say the next word out loud. Now, I have studied that word nothing in the original language, in the Greek language, with the New Testament version written in. Let me tell you what that word nothing means. Nothing. Nothing, not one thing. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And in the Greek language, what's important about the way the Greeks wrote their, their, their language is in English, we don't word orders, not does not communicate importance. For us, subject and verb. that's where we find the importance in the sentence. But in the Greek structure of language, the way they communicated importance was they took a word and put it first in the sentence. And the first word in the sentence was the dominant meaning, the dominant theme of that sentence. You know what the first word in this sentence is in the Greek language? Nothing. Nothing. He literally is shouting, not one thing did you bring into the world. And listen, you're not going to take anything out of this world either. How many of you have heard of the man in the Bible named Solomon? Solomon is a character in the Old Testament. Solomon was one of the great kings of Israel. Solomon was David's son. God used Solomon to build the temple. Solomon was a great character, a great leader, a great king in the Old Testament. One of the things you may not know about Solomon is that when Solomon was alive on the earth, Solomon was the richest man on planet earth. He was the wealthiest human being in the world when he lived. If you were to take his wealth then and translate it into dollars today, Solomon's wealth totaled over $2 trillion. Now, to give you some idea of the magnitude of that, there's a website called lovemoney.com. On that website, they have a list of the 20 wealthiest people in the history of the world. They've gone through history. They've taken people's wealth. They've extrapolated into today's dollars. Number 19 out of 20 is Bill Gates. Bill Gates has $119 billion. Billion. Solomon is number five with over $2 trillion. Bill Gates is a poor man compared to Solomon. At the end of Solomon's life, with all of this wealth, Solomon wrote what we have in our Bibles as the book of Ecclesiastes. I want you to listen to what Solomon said. We all come to the end of our lives as naked and empty-handed As on the day we were born fifth richest man in the history of the world said we can't take our riches with us and this too is a very serious problem people leave this world no better off when they came in all their hard work is for nothing like working for the wind Throughout their lives, they live under a cloud, frustrated, discouraged, and angry. Can I be real honest with you? There ain't nobody in this room going to ever accumulate the amount of wealth Solomon had. He's the fifth wealthiest person in the history of humanity. And at the end of his life, here's what he said. It was like trying to grab a hold of the wind. It's here one day. And then it's gone. Can't take it with you. It's temporary. How many of you know what a landfill is? You know what a landfill is? A landfill is an area of land or a deep hole that has been set aside to accumulate our garbage. I know what seems to be a really clean, easy little process. We, we take our garbage cans, we fill them up, we roll them out on the street, and sometime the garbage ferry comes by and they pick up the garbage. Before you know it, our garbage can is empty and we roll it back in. And it's just this clean little neat process. But listen, all that garbage, those, the, the, the men and women who work in that industry, they take all that garbage to what's called a landfill. Do you know where the largest landfill in the United States of America is? Right here in Las Vegas, Nevada. You'd think New York, Los Angeles, the biggest population centers. Nope. Nope. Right here in Las Vegas. Las Vegas, Nevada, we got the largest landfill in America, which makes it one of the largest landfills in the world. Let me show you a picture of it. It's called the Apex Regional Landfill. All the stuff that we roll out on our street, most of it, it winds up right here. The Apex Regional Landfill. This landfill receives 9,000 tons of trash every day. Currently, it holds just over 80 million tons of garbage. It's big enough, it's 2,200 acres. And it's big enough to continue to take in 9,000 tons of trash for the next 225 years. Meaning our great, 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 great grandkids are going to be piling their garbage up on top of our garbage. You see, why are you talking to us about a landfill? I read a book a few years ago. Some of you have read it. I've recommended it many times by Randy Alcorn called The Treasure Principle. Listen to what Randy Alcorn said about a landfill. He said, this is a landfill, a junkyard, the final resting place for the things in our lives. Sooner or later, everything we own end up, ends up here. Christmas and birthday presents. That's stuff you're going in debt for right now. Where's it going to wind up? Apex Regional Landfill. Cars, boats, and hot tubs, clothes, stereos, and barbecues, the treasures that children quarreled about, friendships were lost over, honesty was sacrificed for, and marriages broke up over. All end up here. It'll be a great field trip. Just load our kids up, go out to the Apex Regional Landfill one day. You know what it says? Material wealth is temporary. The stuff that is brand new right now that you've just purchased and sat in your home is one day going to be filling that 2,200-acre hole just outside of Las Vegas, Nevada. Material wealth is temporary. Life's not about money. Number two, Paul says material wealth is not trustworthy. You see, because it's temporary, you can't trust it. If anything, those of us who've lived in Las Vegas for more than a decade, we ought to know this really well, right? I mean, in Las Vegas in the early 2000s, it's like everybody's getting rich, right? All the, the housing market's booming, and it's exciting, and everybody's bank account looks like it's going up. And then we hit the middle 2000s, and it all went away, and it all was gone. It was temporary. And because it's temporary, you can't trust it. It's like the wind. You, can, you can't grab it. It's here one minute, and then it's gone. Paul uses a word here. He says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope. Here's the word, on the uncertainty of riches. Material wealth is uncertain. It means it's not reliable. It means you can't trust it. It begs a question. What are you trusting in? What are you trusting in? My wife's parents, a few years ago, experienced a house fire. It was in the home that... My wife grew up in where she experienced her childhood, where she was raised, a small town in called Russellville, Alabama. That house burned down. They had an old dog, an old Irish setter, who'd gotten so old that and they had in the carport a, a heater that they would set up a little space heater that they would set up in the garage in the winter to keep him warm. And the dog, in the middle of the night or in, in, in early in the morning, he Moved and he knocked over that space heater. Nobody was in the house. The dog even got out. So don't think anybody. No, the dog didn't die. Don't don't freak out. But the whole house burned down. All those childhood memories, that home, everything. It was all. And you started hearing people say this phrase. Oh, they lost everything. But here's what I'm telling you. They didn't lose everything. You see the stuff that life's really all about. They didn't lose any of that. The relationships, the memories, the friends, the family, even the dog. They didn't lose any of that. Material wealth can't be trusted. It's not trustworthy. But here's the third thing that Paul tells us, and we'll finish with this today. Material wealth does not satisfy. It doesn't satisfy. Why is life not about money? Because it's temporary. It doesn't last because you can't trust it. And because ultimately it doesn't satisfy. I read a moment ago out of Ecclesiastes 5, these words of Solomon, the fifth richest man in the history of the world. Let me show you another thing he said out of Ecclesiastes 5 in verse 10. Look what he said. He said, he who loves money. That phrase loves means to to set your affection on it, to wrap your heart around it, to, to set it as the thing you pursue above all else. He who loves money will not be what? In the Hebrew language, this word satisfied means to be full. Remember that feeling you felt Thursday afternoon? You know what I'm talking about, right? Thanksgiving Day. Oh, I love the smells of Thanksgiving. I love the meal. Listen, we ought to all be in church on the Sunday after Thanksgiving just to repent of the sin of gluttony, right? <laughs> Because we go way past the full meter on Thanksgiving Day, right? I mean, we eat and 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 then we start eating dessert, right? And then we eat some more and we just love, man, we eat and we eat until we just can't hold another bite. And we take that napkin in a wave of surrender and we say, I'm done, I'm full, right? Well, that's the feeling of being full. It means I can't hold another bite, Here's what he said, if you make money and material wealth that which you pursue above all else, it's a cup with a hole in the bottom of it, you're never going to be full. You're always going to want more. Isn't that true? I remember my wife and I first got married. We got married young. I was 20. She was 19. I was in college still. We were so poor. My, my last year and a half of college, I couldn't buy textbooks. I just had to go to class, take good notes, bum off a friend. I couldn't even afford to buy the books. Graduated college, got my first full-time job. I'd been working all the way through school part-time. I got my first full-time job after we got out of college. And I remember us sitting down, looking at that, when they, they gave us an annual salary. I think it was about $20,000 or $25,000, first full-time job. And I'm like, we looked at you and man, if we ever made $10,000 more dollars, we would know what to do with all the money. How would we? I, I, I remember the day we sat around the kitchen table and said, how would we even spend it? <laughs> 28 years of marriage, guess what? Every level. You know what? There's another level. Right? Because the cup's empty. It doesn't satisfy. If you wrap your heart around that, and listen, I, I, transparently, I have to guard my flesh. My wife, she's as content as she can be. My wife's as low maintenance." Her favorite place to eat in the world is Waffle House. That's a fancy night out on the town for her. She loves it. I like to go do nicer stuff than Waffle House. You know, I like the kind of places where when you drop a crumb, they got that little stick and they're raking it. So so I have to battle this in my own heart. And listen, don't don't look at me like you don't too. We, we, We all... Have to battle money becoming that. But here's, the, here's, what he's, here's what Solomon said. It won't satisfy you. Nor he who loves abundance with his income. This too is vanity. Th- there's the testimony of the fifth richest man in the history of the world. Let me give you some other testimony. Anybody know the name John Jacob Astor? Maybe you've heard of the hotel in New York called the Waldorf Astoria. He founded it. In the 1800s, he monopolized and dominated the fur trade in North America. Then through his investments, he began to be the major stakeholder in New York City. He bought up much of New York City. At the time of his death, his wealth was $168 billion in today's world, which makes him the 17th. He's two spots ahead of Bill Gates. The 17th wealthiest man in the history of the world. On his deathbed... His greatest regret was that he'd failed to purchase all of Manhattan. Here's what he said, a quote from his deathbed. I am the most miserable man on earth. The 17th richest man in the history of the world. And on his deathbed, he still wanted more. Why? Because material wealth won't satisfy. Let me give you another witness. How about the seventh person on the list? Solomon was five. Who's number seven? Number seven is a name John D. Rockefeller. Rockefeller is a name that is known with wealth and material possessions in our country here in the United States. He's one of the wealthiest men in American history. His wealth today would be $367 billion. Three times that of Bill Gates. And here's John D. Rockefeller's quote. I have made many millions, but they have brought me no Happiness. The Bible says it. Life's not about money. I've given you eyewitness testimony from three people who are on the list of the 20 richest people in the history of the world. Life is not about money. Paul says here In this text of Scripture, verse 19, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. It literally could be translated real life. You see, the game of life tells us that the player with the highest dollar amount wins. But the real instruction manual for life says life is not about money. Then what is life really about Jesus said it in one sentence in John chapter 17 and verse 3 listen what he said this is life he added a a descriptor this is what kind of life oh what's that not temporary not just now not just this present world but this world and the life to God you want to know what real life's all about I'm about to tell you Jesus said this is life that they may know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You want to know what life's really all about? It's about relationship. First and foremost, it is about an intimate love relationship with God that is given to us through Jesus Christ. You see, God created us as human beings for a relationship with himself. He made us to know him. But here's what happened as human beings. We sinned against God. And because of our sin, we come into this world not only with nothing, we come into this world without a relationship with God. We can't earn it. We can't get to it on our own. But God loved us so much that the greatest gift ever given, God sent his only son, Jesus Christ. God came into the world, took on human flesh, did what we couldn't do, lived a sinless life. And then Jesus offered his body as a sacrifice. He offered himself to pay the penalty for your sin and for my sin. And on the cross, Jesus died for our sin, but he did not stay dead. He rose again from the dead as a testimony that God had accepted his sacrifice for our sin so that now we can put our faith and trust in Jesus and that which we could never earn. We are given as a gift of the amazing grace of God, a personal relationship with the creator who made us. And all of life only begins to make sense when you live it out of the overflow of a relationship with Him. What's life really all about? First and foremost, about a relationship with Him. But then secondly, it's about our relationships with each other. We're to live our lives out of the overflow of a relationship with Him in fellowship with one another, enjoying life. One of the sad realities of being a pastor is I spend... Uh, I've spent a lot of time in the room with people taking their last breath. I've watched more people die than I ever wanted to watch in my lifetime, but it goes with our job. It goes with the calling God's placed on our lives. I've watched people as they took their last breath. Let me tell you what I've never heard anybody taking their last breath say. Boy, I wish I could go to work just one more day. Boy, I wish I could get my retirement account up just a little bit more. Oh, I'd love to have driven one more new car. But you can tell what I've heard him say over and over and over and over and over again. Man, I wish I'd have just spent more time with the Lord. Or I wish I'd spent more time with the people that God gave me in my life as a gift. Why is that what they always say? Here's why that's what they always say. Because that's what life's really all about. It's about your relationship with Jesus, and it's about your relationship with others lived out of the overflow of your relationship with Jesus. So here's the question of the morning. Do you have real life, or are you just playing a game? And next week, we're going to go deeper. We're going to talk about how you manage it. And I'm going to give you three statements next weekend. I'll put them up here just to give you a teaser where we're going. These three statements, give to the Lord, save for the future, budget to live. We're going to talk about all three of those and how we manage our resources. And it's how we do this that impacts the life to come. We're going to learn next weekend. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. The way we manage our resources in this life establishes, in some senses, a a treasure and a currency for the next life. We'll talk about it next weekend. But today, are you living real life or just playing a game? Let's pray together. Father, I pray this morning that as only you can right now, you would speak. God, I pray that you would, in the stillness of this moment, convict, draw, teach. Lord, I pray today for those that don't know Jesus, that they would come to know Jesus today. As you sit quietly before the Lord, maybe you're here and you don't have a relationship with God. You don't know what it means to be a Christian. You're chasing other things in life, trying to fill that emptiness on the inside. Listen, I'm telling you, there's just one answer, and His name is Jesus. Just a moment, we're going to stand and sing and worship God together. And when we do, we're going to have pastors here along the front. And if today you'd like to know Jesus, you want to become a Christian, you want to experience a relationship with God, while we're singing, you just come to one of our pastors and simply say, I need Jesus, and they'll... Have somebody open a Bible and show you how you can become a follower of Jesus today. You can experience God's forgiveness, God's grace, God's salvation today. All you got to do is come. For others of you this morning, maybe you're already a Christian, but God's spoken to your heart. And you just want to come and get in one of these altars and just be alone with God. Maybe you've allowed other things. Maybe it's wealth. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's some other stuff to just kind of take first place in your life and you just want to make a fresh surrender today and just come and get in one of these altars and just spend a moment with the Lord. For others, maybe there's something in your job, your health, your family, a relationship, your marriage and you just want to pray with a pastor. You can come. We'd be honored to pray with you and for you. But listen, if you don't know Jesus today, come find life. Come find life today. Father, have your way in this moment. Speak as only you can.